Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. Just, just a quick word to uh, report back that, uh, and thank you for your prayers. Those of you who've been aware, perhaps, of our having been in uh, Australia the last five weekends uh, for encouraging the church that's based in Sydney which is a, a New Frontiers church we planted there. It's growing. It's a beautiful family church uh, and seeing more people uh, added to it. We also embraced uh, what we call the Pacific Rim region of leaders from the churches in the Philippines, Cambodia, uh, New Zealand, and other places in Australia and Japan. And uh, they brought together Cambodians, Filipinos, Japanese as well. Uh, we had a superb time together and the conference there. This time, we've been twice before since this uh, development, and in the past we've travelled outside of Sydney as well, but this time we stayed uh, in the Sydney church, and uh, we really feel we've made some excellent relationships, and the church is prospering. We really feel good about our being there. The Japanese church now gathers something like 70, which is, uh, to be honest, quite wonderful uh, in the Japanese scene, considering we started with nothing, and... uh, uh, they're doing well. Uh, Tom Eaton, who used to be our student worker in the church in Brighton, now speaking very good Japanese. Of course, his little children speak it fluently. Um, but he and his wife doing increasingly well in the language, developing good relationships there. So we had a very, very good time. As I say, thank you so much for your prayers. We're still getting over jet lag a bit. Um, there's no mercy for you if you fall asleep while I'm speaking, but have mercy on me if I do. Uh, <laughs> We're still grappling with staying awake at the right time and falling asleep at the right time. Uh, so, it's uh, ten days. They tell me it takes a day for an hour. So they told me when I was up there. I've never heard that before. But that was about right. It took me about ten days uh, for the ten-hour difference uh, to get through jet lag that way. Uh, so, we'll see how we get on. Gradually getting there. Uh, just one more thing to mention before coming into the Scriptures is that this coming Saturday, we have our Istanbul Day uh, uh, John and Sophie, I mean, it's a just incredible thing, are going to Istanbul uh, to help plant a new church in September, and that's a massive move for them. We're going to miss them terribly, but it's a very exciting development for the advance of the gospel in Turkey, which, of course, is such a key nation as a bridge between East and West. Uh, we already have a church plant in Istanbul. We have another church in Izmir, which is the biblical Smyrna, and we've had the joy of being in and out of there. But this is a very important meeting this coming Saturday, hosted in Bermondsey. There are probably more of these cards at the back, I would think. If you've not seen them hitherto, I guess they've been mentioned. So if you can be with us, I'm looking forward to a great day of really putting this thing on the map. More and more prayer endorsement, perhaps people saying, I'd like to go as well, short term or long term, for this exciting adventure of planting a church in Turkey. So let's keep praying for John and their family and if you can be with us on Saturday or remember praying for us, that would be excellent. Okay, it's Bermondsey, starts at 10 o'clock next Saturday. It's a meal thrown in, so get there, okay? Be good. We're going through Mark's Gospel as a church and so this morning we've come to Mark and chapter 6. I'm going to read a passage through with you and it's one of those sort of passages which If you weren't systematically working through uh, the Bible or a book of the Bible, I'm not sure you would ever choose to preach on it. And I think uh, that's why it's a very good idea to submit yourself to going through a series because it makes you face uh, quite strange chapters about things like heads on plates, uh, which is a pretty unusual thing to read about. Okay, so I'm going to read from chapter 6 of Mark from verse 14. King Herod heard, when it says of it, it means of the growth of the influence of the Lord Jesus. King Herod heard about this development, uh, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others were saying, he's Elijah. Others were saying, He's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John 
whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and couldn't do so. For Herod was afraid of John, not knowing that, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oath, and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. I'd just like to read a couple of short readings to give some background to this. First is in Genesis, Genesis and in chapter 2, just a few verses. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. And then one last reading in Ephesians chapter 2. Sorry about all these readings, but I hope you'll ex I'll explain later why. Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now at work in the sons of dis disobedience. Although among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even these strange provocative stories. And we pray, Father, for the help of the Holy Spirit, that we might benefit from exposing our minds to truth and that, Father, you would come and speak to us. You would come and affect change in our lives that you might be glorified by our response to your word. So come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Rest upon us right now.
Help us to hear God together. We thank you for the privilege of the living church of God where your presence is known. Come and teach us, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I guess Christmas is long behind us now, but one of the things I love about Christmas is that uh, they love to bring out these old movies again. And I think the one that I always look for and so enjoy is the story of Scrooge. Uh, We even have the Muppets show with Scrooge. And uh, uh, I love the uh, Alistair Sim or whoever has done it. Just, it's a wonderful story. Uh, It's a story about an awakened conscience, about someone who lived in a certain way and then his eyes are opened uh, to how he's been and he's shocked and awakened uh, to change. And of course, great, great uh, playwrights, whether it be Dickens or whether it be Shakespeare, often turn their plots on moments of awakened conscience. Uh, whether it, when in Hamlet, his mother, who's uh, married again, and her, was the father killed? What's the story here? And, and suddenly the conscience is awakened. Richard III, other stories, Macbeth, they turn on kind of awakened guilt and a sense of, I should never have done that. And it's interesting because we, we live in a day when so many people would argue, no, there's no such thing as God. Uh, we've just evolved, we're just creatures, we're just uh, the result of a strange clash of neutrons and we've just become uh, living things. And there's no reason for conscience, there's no reason, because, well, there's no one to give account to. But great playwrights who write plays that last for centuries, that have captivated audiences internationally uh, down through the years, they understand human nature. They understand how people do grow aware of guilt and shame and how stories turn on fully formed characters. Not like the modern thoughts, well, it's just the karma, it's just the way things work out, or just locked into things, or who cares anyway. No, these stories tell us that actually we do care. And they remind us there can come moments of frightening awakening. So we're not just, I don't think, the victim's of circumstance or of culture, we are people who make decisions which later we can profoundly regret. Later we can be woken up and think, I wish I never did that. I so regret it. I'm full of remorse. I wish it had never, ever happened. And really what we're looking at this morning is the story of a king with a conscience. It's a strange story about John the Baptist. And what we read as we're going on through Mark's Gospel and noted week by week is that Jesus is becoming more and more famous. The crowds are going after him. It must have been phenomenal, really, that Jesus would come to a town and just heal. Sometimes it says he healed every one of them. Imagine coming to a small town, there's not one sick person there. And the people were crowds, were pursuing him. We read how he had to get out into a boat to preach because the crowds were pressing in. And a nation's being awakened by this travelling prophet. It's already happened with John the Baptist. John the Baptist uh, came on the scene and it says about him, all Judea went out to hear him. He was in the wilderness. And uh, this big language, all Judea, the whole of the people were pouring out to hear this man. And a terrific spiritual awakening. They wanted to hear what this man was saying. And now Jesus, similarly, is awakening the nation. These are two waves of spiritual awakening that's happened. And when this is happening, people are saying, well, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And some are saying, well, it's Elijah has come back, or there's superstition about, or somebody's been raised from the dead. And then Herod, the king, hears about the phenomenal success of Jesus, and he says, and the scripture says, he kept on saying, it's John whom I beheaded. He suddenly stirred and scared out of his life. And it's interesting, it says, whom I beheaded. Actually, of course, he didn't personally behead him, but he knows where the responsibility lies. And it's interesting the way it's set out in the scriptures. It's a bit like a modern movie where you begin the plot and then it has to go back to a flashback of what had previously happened. And that's the way the story is told here in the scripture. He says, it's John, whom I killed. He's alive again. And then the Bible goes on to say, because this is what had happened. This is what had happened. John the Baptist had preached. Great, great crowds went out to hear him. And he's calling for national repentance. 
He's calling for the, the people, come back to the God that this nation has always served. You're drifting so badly. And then he specifically turned on the king and accused him of breaking God's law by taking his, hus- his brother's wife and marrying her. He said, I want this woman. And she's married to his brother. But he wants her, so he just takes her. And says, so she's going to be my wife. I mean, I'm the king, I'll do what I like. He has absolute authority, he does what he pleases, and this woman pleased him. So he took his brother's wife and made her his wife. And uh, John the Baptist had preached against him. He kept on saying publicly, he's not hidden away in some synagogue, he's out in the open air and he's publicly accusing the king of acting grossly and immorally and against uh, the will of God. So he's doing this, and it's interesting to notice that Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, says at this time the nation was ashamed of its king and that the nation was getting into a shameful place. So Josephus, the Jewish historian, backs up this biblical story. Uh, So often that is the case. Other historians endorse what the Bible says actually happened. And he says the nation was very ashamed of King Herod. Because King Herod had just taken John the Baptist and killed him. Now, it's interesting to see what he did. It says, first of all, he knew he was a righteous man. He knew he was pious. Okay, in verse 20 it says, he knew he was a holy man. John wasn't uh, lacking authenticity. He came from a godly home. His parents were priests. The Spirit of God came on him in his mother's womb. Uh, He was birthed with prophecy over him that he was going to be a voice to the nation. He was going to bring the nation a challenge. And he was genuine, a genuinely dedicated man. He was a man who was uh, not a showman because at one time when Jesus came on the scene and some of John the Baptist's disciples said, hey, Jesus is getting bigger crowds than you. And John the Baptist said, no, no, that's fine. I must decrease, he must increase. I only have what God's given me. This was a pure, godly man. And, and Herod knew that. The Bible says he knew he was a righteous man. So he was pious. But he was also powerful. So when he preached, although he preached in the wilderness, people flocked out to hear him. Now we would often uh, pray, and I think it's not wrong to do so, I would pray, God, give signs and wonders and demonstrations that you're with us, you're in your church, just as you did with Jesus and the early apostles. People were healed, people had their eyes opened, their deaf ears opened. God, God did wonderful things to attest the gospel. Lord, please do that. And God does do that. But it says of John the Baptist, he did no miracle. He didn't perform any signs and wonders, but still God was powerfully on him in such a way that people flocked out to hear him. Now that's happened in my generation with someone like Billy Graham who could suddenly gather huge crowds, massive, massive crowds. Now I know a big organisation came behind him, but it started with his ability to speak in such a way that captivated audiences. Of course, we can read about C.H. Spurgeon, uh, back in the 1800s in London, where thousands gathered to, and they had to build a great big church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where thousands gathered to hear him. Again, no signs and wonders. Or even George Whitfield, perhaps the most phenomenal preacher of England's history, who preached in the days of Wesley and preached to thousands, crowds, massive crowds, went to hear him. And I just read this recently. I'll have to read out to you because I think this could have been the atmosphere when John the Baptist was preaching. It could have been like this in Bible days. This is just a description of what it was like when Whitfield preached and he was thrown out of churches and so he preached in the open air and crowds would come and hear him. It says this, Under Mr. Whitfield's sermon, many of the immense crowd that filled every part of the burial ground, because he wasn't allowed inside, so he went outside, were overcome with fainting. Some sobbed deeply. Others wept silently. 
The bitter cries and groans were enough to pierce the hardest heart. Some of the people were as pale as death. Others were wringing their hands. Others lying on the ground. Others sinking into the arms of friends. Most lifting up their eyes to heaven, crying to God for mercy. One would imagine none could have withstood the power or avoided the crying out, Surely God is in this place! When the sermon was ended, people seemed chained to the ground. It's fascinating reading of these periods of revival when the presence of God comes so manifestly that great crowds are listening. It must have been like that with John the Baptist. Crowds were just hanging on every word. So he was powerful. He was also very public, not hidden away. And he kept on saying, the king shouldn't do this. The king shouldn't do this. Publicly. And so Herod's living with this awareness that crowds are listening and he's very popular. They love him. The crowds love hearing him. They, they love going to listen to this phenomenal experience. And he keeps on naming Herod. Persistently saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. As a result, we're told, the king took him and put him in prison. Now, his wife would have said, kill him. Just kill him. It's quite plain. Herodias said, kill the man. You're the king. Put him to death. But he wouldn't do that. It's interesting, but why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't he do that? And it says he was afraid of him. There was a sense of power on the man, so he was, he was somewhat scared of him, but he was also, it says, he was perplexed. And this is where you find Herod so strange. He said, but I'm going to stop his public voice. I'm in control. I'm the king. I'm taking him out of the public scene, but I'm not going to kill him. It's almost like I'm not as bad as Herodias. I won't destroy him, but I'm not going to let him carry on doing this, so I will imprison him. I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of this situation. I'll imprison him. And it says, you know, he was also aware that he was massively popular, so he's a bit of a politician, he doesn't want to go against the crowd, so he just imprisons him, he doesn't get the reputation, you slaughtered him, now he's alive. And then this strange thing, he used to enjoy listening to him. What a strange deal is this? There's something that fascinated Herod about the power on the man, the kind of charisma about him. And it says, Herod used to enjoy listening to him. It's like saying to Herod, what are you doing on Saturday afternoon? I think I'll go and listen to John the Baptist. You know, he's just kind of phenomenal. And there's a fascination in him. Not that he's going to change. Not that he's going to do what he says. He's not really... You see, this is a prophet. And in Jewish thought, that doesn't mean he's just a clever voice. But in Jewish thought, and in truly biblical thought, it's the voice of God. This is God speaking to a people. He loves to listen to him. He loves the fascination of feeling something supernatural here. But he's not going to do anything about it. He's making his own choices. So that's the situation. He thought, I just want to live on the edge. He kind of gets an excitement about it. But this fascinating voice, I've stopped him, he's no longer public, I've not slaughtered him, I'm in control here. I know what I'm doing. And sometimes I just like to listen to him because he's a phenomenon. That's the situation that starts. Then we need to see that, to be honest, life is not static. And as we go on, I just want to remind you later on of what we've read earlier in the Bible where we find that the human race is warned by God not to act independently. And then Satan comes along and says, look, look, if you would eat of this fruit... You can be as God, you can call the tune. You make the choices. That's what it said there in the beginning of the Bible. God says, you must not do this or you will die. And man said, no, no, because Satan came and said, no, you won't die. You won't die, do what you like. Become as gods, as it were, become as a king. Become an independent, become someone who makes his own choices. We need to understand that the king in the, in the Bible is a very responsible person. The king of Israel is God's representative on earth. 
That's what we're told in the Old Testament, that when, they make, that when you, you have a king, he will be God's representative. It's interesting looking at Jewish history, you'll find two books that are just called Kings. And it's a story, of, it's a history of Israel, but all it talks about is the king. This king was born, did evil, died, next king. And, and uh, the king is meant to represent God and meant to lead the nation in a godly way. And Herod, in that sense, is in the representation of God. And do you know what? God says, I make man in my image. And the dignity of the human race is that we are meant to represent God. God has made man in his image, in his likeness. And God takes sin seriously because he takes mankind seriously. He's given us a certain dignity. He's given us a sense of being his representative. So it's hugely important. This story is very interesting because here's a king who has represents in himself that kind of independence that the Bible speaks about. No, I'm in charge. I'm not wicked like Herodias. I wouldn't kill him. But I'm not going to have him do that. I'm not going to have him speak against me publicly. I have this thing under control. And that's what Satan really wants to whisper to us. You run your life. You make your choices. I'm not going to be gross. I'm not going to do real wickedness. But I am going to make my choices. And here this man's making his choices, but the story moves on. And it's interesting. It shows that life has some unexpected turns. There comes a party. Actually, he throws it. It's a, his, he throws a banquet and uh, it finds out he's not master of his own circumstances. There came a strategic day. It says in the New International Version, an opportune time. See, it wasn't in his mind what happens at this party. It wasn't his intention. But there was somebody else who did have an intention. Herodias had other thoughts, other plans. And so he throws a party. He doesn't walk into this party thinking, this is what I will do. But let's see what happens. He goes, he has a party. And uh, in the party, things got out of hand. What happens? Well, the story is... The Bible's not a tabloid newspaper... But it does say, effectively, an atmosphere arose. There's probably a lot of drink around. I would think drunkenness is taking place because he makes a phenomenally rash promise. He's no longer wise. He's no longer in control. And the Bible spares us the details, but there's a party atmosphere. People are getting excited together. I think sometimes people think that alcohol is a stimulant, but the Bible teaches us, or at least, beg pardon, uh, the medical profession would tell us that alcohol actually is a depressant. It doesn't make you excited. It stops you being human. It stops you being careful. It stops you being responsible. It stops you thinking, hey, I need to pay account of what will happen if I do this. It kind of switches off some of the things that make us have human dignity And so at a party, when we all agree in a party atmosphere, an atmosphere begins to arrive which is not as we would want it to be, ultimately. It creates a kind of corporate freedom where things start happening that are of our control. So we find this party begins to take place and the daughter of the king's wife starts to dance publicly. Now, this is not some sort of bimbo who jumps out of a cake. This is, this is the daughter of the king's wife. Imagine it. In the, this is the royal family. Imagine it in our nation. The royal family. This is the daughter. You think, what is going on here? And she's obviously dancing in a very sensual way. He's obviously aroused by... He's already been aroused by his brother's wife. I'll have her. Now this girl's dancing and he's aroused by her and the whole atmosphere is pretty disgusting, really. And he suddenly comes out with a ridiculous thought. He says, I'll give you whatever. It's like he's kind of drunk. You know, whatever you like, I'll have it. You know. And it's just up to half my kingdom. He's probably not thinking about half the kingdom. It's hyperbole. He's just saying, whatever. What would you like? And she's just probably a teenage girl. 
So she runs up to her mother and says, what, what, what shall I ask for? He says, I can have anything. I can, I can have anything. He's really excited. He's really pleased with me. What shall I ask for? And this ice-cold woman says, John the Baptist's head. And suddenly, whereas he thought he was in control, he's not in control. Suddenly, it's out of his hands. And it's fascinating to see what happens because somebody who feels this can happen in our lives, we think we're in control, then we find ourselves in a situation where, hey, it's out of my control. Why? Well, he promised her. He said, whatever, whatever you ask for. And she probably said, beg pardon? And he said it again, with an oath. Hey, I swear, whatever you ask for, I'll give it. And Herodias says, get John the Baptist and so she comes back and says, John the Baptist, hey! Do you remember the shock? And then it says, but I said in front of all the people. And this, this is not just an ordinary party, this is a royal party. So, national leaders, leaders of his army, national power, people are there. And the king has said, whatever! And now he's, I said it. I said it. And it's a fascinating thing that when you think, I'm in charge, and you're no longer submitted to a a true authority, like God's holy law, like the Ten Commandments, which that nation should have been living under, when you don't have an objective authority outside of you, other things start kicking in. Like, what will they think if I go back on my word? I mean, what were my leaders of the nation? And and I did say I'd do it. You think, well, this is crazy. That's no kind of rule to live by that rule. I mean, he could so simply have said, hey, I didn't mean murder. When I said half the kingdom, yeah, I didn't mean kill somebody. No, he doesn't. He thinks, no, what will they think of me if? And sometimes when 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 you brush aside God's authority, other things begin to give people are kind of, well, what, what should be my line of thought then? Well, I said I'd do it. I've got, I've got to be true to my word. And, and what will people think of me if? And so he's suddenly trapped with his own foolish thoughts when he, you see, here's a man thinking, no, I'll be as king, I'll do what I choose. But he didn't think ahead. He didn't think, now if I get drunk or if I say some stupid thing or, no, no, another authority creeps in, I've got to keep people happy. And he's trapped. He's, he's absolutely trapped. And he arranges for John the Baptist's head to be removed. And now, now, now Jesus has come on the scene. Now Jesus is becoming popular. And you find this king saying, it's John the Baptist whom I killed. Not that he did kill him. Somebody else killed him. But no, no, I know who's responsible. And this frightening, awakening awareness of what I've done. Suddenly, his conscience is frighteningly awakened. Suddenly, the truth of what's happened overwhelms him. God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. Satan said, now if you eat of it, you'll become as God's. You make your choices. You're free to choose. Have your own morality. Have your, no, don't let someone else tell you. you. You choose. And that's been the plague of the human race, that we want to make our choices. We, we say, no, I'm not prepared to have another voice telling me. I want to make my own decisions. And here's a man who's king, who's free. Not many of us have got the freedom of a king. Not many of us can say, well, I will do exactly what I want. But this guy can do exactly what he wants. I'll have that woman. I'll do this. I'll do this. But suddenly, suddenly, he's trapped. And suddenly he's in a difficulty. And it's interesting, Jesus, well, at least in the Old Testament, says, you will surely die. And in the New Testament, in Ephesians, we just read quickly, what, what does it mean when it says you should die? You were dead, it says in Ephesians 2. How does that death demonstrate it? Well, it says... We were dead, in which, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to, and it says three things that describe the death that's upon us. That the human race is like walking dead men unless we find life. 
unless we find a saviour, unless we find someone who can release us. And the three things characterising our death are here in Ephesians 2. You walked according to the course of the world. In other words, what the world thinks will dominate our thinking. And so Herod is trapped here and he's thinking, I don't want to kill him. I know Herodias would, but I wouldn't, that's not my choice. But what will people think if I don't? What will people think? He said, and, and so in order to keep other people, in order to keep his own position in the mind of the world, we are, there's an enslavement to being acceptable. And that can happen to us in all kinds of ways in terms of just being shaped by the world's values, what makes people acceptable, our conduct, the things we value, the things we prize, the way we dress, the way we conduct ourselves, we tend to want to be accepted. And that, the Bible says that's a kind of a death. It kind of shapes you. It, it shuts you in to cultural acceptance, the sort of way you are. And here's this man trapped. He's completely trapped because, well, he just wants to know I'm accepted in the crowd. And then it says... You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that's in the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the Bible's saying there's a, a real power of darkness that will move in on us sometimes. And sometimes that will happen in a crowd when you can see a crowd can suddenly become very ugly. And the, and the, and the Bible says there's a spirit at work. There's a, what often these days is called the dark side. There's a, the Bible speaks there is a real darkness that can come over people, whether it be an individual or whether it be a crowd. There is a manifestation of evil that takes people over and afterwards they think, I don't know why I did it. I can't understand, why did I do that? I wish I'd never done it, but something took me over. And that's at work. That's at work, especially here in this party where, yeah, drink has put down normal ideas of what is decorum and what is appropriate. And then thirdly, it says, according to the lusts of the flesh. And here's a man who is frighteningly possessed by the lusts of the flesh. And so that these three things cut us into darkness, make us feel shut in, that we are, according to the Bible, we're dead, we're walking dead. We are experiencing a short period where we can find life in Jesus. But our human experience is one that has been grossly troubled. It's already been affected by our turning against God. So here's a man who says, when he hears of Jesus as being successful, crowds are coming, his conscience awakens him. And he said, that's, that's the man I put to death. And he's aware he did something he never intended to do. When he went to that party, he didn't go to that party thinking, I'll kill John the Baptist. He thought, I'm in control, but he suddenly found himself in a situation where he was not in control. And that can be our experience, that we think, well, I'm, I'm running my life, but I didn't, I didn't anticipate what was around this corner. I didn't anticipate what would happen. Suddenly, it's out of my control. And he has arranged the man's death. And suddenly, his guilty conscience awakens him. He's profoundly troubled by what he has done. But it's fascinating to read on what happened to this man. Because as you read on, you find he gets over it. You know, sometimes your conscience can be awakened and then sometimes that can be just gradually put behind you. I had a testimony of a man, at least I read it in his book, he became a Christian, but he says that earlier on, he was far from Christian. And he remembers the first time he ever seduced a girl, had sexual relationships with her. He said he went home, he was so undone by it. He said I, I, he actually threw up. He just felt so ashamed. He was sick. He felt terrible about it that he had done this. He'd, he'd just stolen from this girl, effectively. He'd spoiled. He said, what have I done? What have I done? He said he threw up. He said, the second time I did it, it wasn't so difficult. And then gradually it became a way of life. But at first, his conscience was really troubled. It's so possible to put down 
a conscience that's awakened. And that's a very frightening thing. When, when, when you're no longer vulnerable to a conscience, when you just become hardened. And that becomes apparent when you read on in the story and you find, for instance, in Luke 23, that Pilate has Jesus brought to him just before the cross. And uh, he, comes, he comes to Pilate. And Pilate's a Roman soldier and they're saying, he says he's the Messiah, he says the Son of God, and this is Roman thinking, oh, these Jewish people with their words, their religious nonsense, what do I know about it? And he's not interested, I don't want to even know about this Jesus, who cares? And then he finds out that Jesus, actually from Galilee, he's, he's within Herod's jurisdiction. Ah, oh, great, I can, I can wash my hands of it. And so he, he says, I send him to Herod. And it's fascinating that this one, who earlier on said, oh, this is John the Baptist who's alive from the dead, and he's scared. Now, by Luke uh, 23, verse 8, it says, Herod was very glad when Pilate sent him. Because it says this, he wanted to see him. He hoped he would see him perform some miracle. And it says Herod again. This strange thing. But he was fascinated with the supernatural. Fascinated. Just as he had been listening to John the Baptist, now he's saying, oh, they're going to send Jesus to me. And whereas two years earlier, when he first heard of Jesus, he's horrified, he's hearing his crowds, he's, oh, it's John the Baptist, come alive, I killed him, oh, what has happened? And his conscience has awakened, it's just slipped by. A couple of years have slipped by. He's lost that tenderness of conscience, that alarm had gone. And by now, oh great, John, here comes Jesus. I can see him, I can hear him, I can maybe do some miracle for me. You know, it's very frightening when our consciences are so crushed down that they no longer speak to us. It's like walking around as a blind man. When your conscience can't speak to you anymore, it's very scary, it's very alarming. A man who used to be troubled by what he had done is no longer troubled. And Jesus is brought to him. And this is an extraordinary thing that happens. That this man is he's lost. He's terribly lost. There's no hope for him. He's a very evil man. And it says Jesus came and starts asking Jesus questions. And Jesus is the saviour of the world. He's the light of the world. And this man is in such darkness. He desperately needs the saviour. He asks Jesus many questions. And then you get this frightening phrase. Jesus answered him, not one word. Now that is very, very frightening. But there can come a kind of time where God's not speaking anymore when you know, the opportunity for hearing him has gone. And that should, that should really concern us. If this morning you've come as our guest, you're most welcome. We love to have guests with us. But if you haven't yet really met Jesus, do beware the danger of becoming indifferent, careless, I don't care really. I used to be worried about such things when I was young, but now, come on, we're all real here, let's face reality. And what can happen is a kind of hardening comes over our hearts and we don't hear anymore. We're not interested anymore. We're not fascinated anymore. Maybe earlier in life, yeah, I used to look at those things, but, ah, come on. And, and what can happen is we just get involved in sinful things and we don't care anymore. And, and we're not shocked anymore. And we don't have any sensitivity to our conscience anymore. And here's a man who was like that and he has the opportunity but Jesus says to him, not one word. It's like you've had your opportunity. And that's very scary when God has nothing more to say to someone. When we act against what we know to be true. Francis Schaeffer, wonderful Bible teacher of the past, kind of prophetic voice, he said that the day we meet God he will bring to us our own words. And he said it's like this, it's like throughout your life 
you were carrying a recording machine around your neck and it was recording every moral statement that you ever made. So that you may have said, that should never happen. How could he do that and get away with that? How could she do that? That is wrong. And it's like every moral statement you've ever made, God is recording. And the scripture actually, to back up this idea, that we'll be judged out of our own mouths, that we will say, that shouldn't happen. And it might be like Herod could say, Herodias says, kill him. No, that's right, I'm not going to kill him. And things we have said, that shouldn't happen, you should never do that, that's wrong. And it's like when we meet God one day, he will say, Here, here's what you said. These were the values you knew. This is what you actually said. This is the, this is the or assessment on situations. And you hear your own words. And Schaefer said, we will be judged out of our own mouths because of the values we've said. Here's this guy, he's trapped. Now his conscience has become completely blurred. But he actually knows the truth. But no longer is Jesus going to speak to him. He thought he could handle it. He thought he was in control. But things happen that get outside of your control. Things happen when, well, I didn't expect it to happen. I remember a tragic story of a friend of mine who was a pastor and his daughter got her A-levels. She was so excited. She went off to a party. There was drink at the party. And rather like Herodias, there's somebody else at the party who's got different intentions. We're just having fun. Now Herodias has got... She's not just having fun. And there was a guy at that party who wasn't just having fun. A terrible tragedy of what happened to that girl at that party. Because, wow, we just... We're having such fun. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And now she's pregnant. And you think, wow, what happened? And things happen. You think, well, what? if only we'd just been careful. If only we'd walked with God. If only we'd, we'd said, no, God, no, no, we'll do it what God says. Go God's way. We respect what God has said. Because things take place. And, and sometimes you, you, you get other value systems that click in and, well, everybody's doing it. Well, come on. Don't hold back, everybody. Let's get into this. Wow. And then later, oh, what did I ever do? What did I ever do? I never meant to do it. I never went to that party expecting that to happen. And this is what the Bible's telling us, that there's danger for us. But thank God we're no longer at that place where Jesus will no longer speak a word to us. I want to encourage us that, look, Jesus is still saying, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the one who can cleanse your conscience. And wonderfully, the scripture says that when he shed his blood, he cleanses our conscience. Do you have a troubled conscience? Do you have a conscience that troubles you sometimes? Think, I wish I'd never, ever done it. People do live with regret. They can think, well, that happened to me 10, 20 years ago. And they live with regret. Live with sadness. Sometimes it just happened very recently. Think, I wish I'd never, I could, ne- I could just have missed that. I needn't have gone there. I wasn't looking to God. But Jesus provides forgiveness and a cleansed conscience. His blood cleanses our conscience. It's not just an external washing. We sometimes baptize people here. It looks like an external thing. No, God cleanses our conscience. He sets us free. He's offering us mercy. We can come to him and know that he still wants to speak to us. Be good for us to stand. Let's stand to worship. I'd like to lead us in prayer and then we'll begin to worship this one. Let's just draw near to God. Just understand this, dear friends, that we, we may have things we wish we'd never done. We know in that story of Scrooge, it's the ghost of Christmas past, the, this kind of telling us what we did just kind of rattling his chains around us. Think, God, I wish I'd never, never done it. 
And that's what Herod, Herod, we're introduced to a man who knows he's done terrible things. He never intended doing them, but he thought, I can run my own life. When we're thinking, we, I can run my own life, that's when we get into danger. Because actually there's terrible powers we don't even know about that are ready to trap us. And this morning, the Lord Jesus, he's, he's not going to not speak to us. He's, he will hear us. If we come to him this morning, say, Lord, I am so sorry. I'm sorry I touched her. I'm sorry I responded to him. I'm sorry I let him do things to me I should never have let him do. Sometimes we feel abused, not because we gave permission, but because people just took things from us. We just feel stained by other people's sin on us. We live with regret. And, and Jesus is a God of immense mercy. And we can find forgiveness. We can find forgiveness, even this morning. And Father, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus. We confess, Lord, our, we've been stained, we've been spoiled. There are things we regret. And we want to ask you for mercy, even this morning. We want to ask you for forgiveness, even this morning. We want to be refreshed by your saving power, your wonderful mercy, your ability to rebuild lives, to give us a fresh start. And Father, I do pray that we, as we come to you in worship, in prayer, as maybe some of us ask for prayer at the end of the meeting, we can come and find fresh hope in Jesus. We thank you, you are a God of wonderful resurrection, of life, of mercy. So bless us, Lord. Bless us in your presence as we worship. Bless us through your word, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.